Good morning. You are listening to the dulcet tones of Virginia Environmental Network. Radio. Working your good voice here. I can imitate it when I when I when I want. You have done interviews probably a million times. A million times. You are just you go so long. An expert. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Hit me with your best shot. Okay. One of my favorite musicians who lives near my daughter. Oh my gracious. Mary Chapin. Is that really? her song? Oh, that's what yeah. that's Mary Chapin lives off of two kids. Pat Benatar. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Actually, okay. it is Pat Benatar. <laughs> but Mary Chapin Carpenter is good, too. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Mm. We're ready to go? All right. Yep. We're good. Good morning, Jerry. Good I am morning, Mary so Virginia. glad that you have donated your records of the Virginia Environmental Endowment, and I'm very pleased that I get the opportunity to interview you. You have a rich history in environmental conservation, and today is September 4, 2009. And I'd like to start out with talking a little about your, your childhood, if you would, where you were born. Sononato in Nueva York. I, was <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see if you're paying attention. <laughs> I was born in New York City in the Grand Island of Manhattan many years ago <laughs> in a galaxy far away. <laughs> um, Did you live all your childhood in New York City? Until I graduated from college, yes. And so for the first 22 years of my life, I lived in New York City. Did you stay at home when you were in college? For most of it, yes, exactly. That was pretty normal up there. Everybody commuted to school, it seemed. And uh, I grew up in the shadow of Manhattan College, my undergraduate alma mater, and I could literally walk there. Mm -hmm. So it was easy to do, and it was a fine school, and I got a great education. And uh, it was only when I left there and went to graduate school that I realized there was a much bigger world beyond New York City, because we <laughs> thought we were the center of yeah. the universe. Everybody else talked funny, and <laughs> yeah. I didn't know anything, and it was, but you know, you learned a lot growing up in New York City just by being there. If it is true that 90% of life is showing up, then New York is a good place to grow up, because you learn, 90% of what I learned, I probably learned there, <laughs> one way or the other. Would you mind describing your nuclear family? Father, mother, two brothers, that was it. And? What professions were your parents working in? They were, you know, working people. My mother was an executive secretary to the head of a big department at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. My father was a manager for the subway system in New York. And uh, so they, you know, were normal people. Was there any family member when you were growing up, or like a scout leader, or someone who was like a mentor, someone that kind of lit a spark with you? Well, I'm very grateful to my mother's parents, my grandparents on that side of the family, who just were totally supportive and encouraging of anything I wanted to do, and you know, always had a positive thing to say and encouraged me. Um, I, I wish every child had that opportunity because it's just so positive a relationship that um, you know, I remember it to this day how encouraging and positive and supportive they uh, they were. It was just great to have someone like that growing up. 
not that they were indulgent because they weren't, but they were encouraging and positive and reinforcing the, the good things um, and, you know, punishing the bad things, let's say. But um, something like that in every child's life would be a good thing. Did they live also in Manhattan? No, they lived in Connecticut. Oh. So, but I would spend a couple of weeks with them every summer. And uh, those were the magical weeks, you know, when you got out and you lived at the beach and you mm-hmm. just took it easy and enjoyed the sun and the sand and the surf and their company. So it was pretty, pretty supportive environment that way. When you were in high school and college, what were your thoughts about a career? Oh, I was told from the time I was two years old I was going to be an electrical engineer and I was going to go to Manhattan College <laughs> just up the street from where I grew up, and, uh, and that was my life. And, you know, when you grow up being told that every week, it's no surprise. But it, it turns out that wasn't my natural inclination. And, and I was lucky enough to realize at some point that I was really more interested in history and psychology and people subjects, as it were, even philosophy and theology. And so, um, and and those things came to me in a more normal, natural way, whereas, well, I guess math did too. I mean, I was the mental arithmetic champion of my second grade class, so I've never (laughs) forgotten that for some reason. (laughs) And and so I've, I've had good math and music skills all my life, but I always define that history in the following way. It, it, to me, it's, it's very kind of interesting in that um, if you were, normally if you were an engineering or a science major of some kind, you tend to be fairly linear in your thinking, progressing from A to B to C to D and so on and so forth, and you know, breaking things down into smaller pieces and taking them one piece at a time and eventually arriving at a solution or sometimes in in the engineering profession knowing where you want to be and working your way backwards to figure out what you have to do to get there. Whereas um, the, I I don't know about the opposite of that, I don't know what the experts call it, but uh, to me it's always been a different way of looking at it. Uh, is you have more of a quantum leap approach to things. And and after college and early in my professional life, I used to, I'm sure, annoy people no end until I realized that we'd be having a conversation and I knew where we were going, you know, in five minutes and I would just kind of jump ahead and get there. And people would say, yes, okay, you know, but they would have rather have gotten there in a more normal conversational pattern. And, and that kind of quantum leap thinking is different from um, the engineering, to my mind anyway, maybe not for brilliant scientists, perhaps the best scientists in the world have the same kind of approach, I don't know, because um, I don't count myself in their number, even though my education is officially electrical engineering and physics as an undergraduate and nuclear engineering and physics in graduate school, but I took all the philosophy, theology, psychology, and even a couple of history courses I could get as an undergraduate, because those are the ones that I got straight A's in and really enjoyed the most and helped boost my grade point average so I could get out of there. And, and while I enjoyed engineering, I, I never really intended to practice it. In fact, there was a, a, a fellow came to talk to engineering majors at the school one year. We always had a career day every year. and. 
graduates of the college or prominent business and engineering executives would come around and talk about careers in engineering. And I'll never forget this one guy. He was the editor-in-chief of McGraw-Hill, and they ran several engineering magazines at the time. And he was a graduate of Manhattan as well in chemical engineering. And uh, I guess he'd been out for 20 years or something like that. And uh, he said, look around the room and, you know, you're all majors in engineering of one kind or another, but in terms of a career path, within 20 years, if not sooner, there won't be one in five of you actually practicing engineering. You'll all go into management or sales or some other thing um, besides being a professional engineer or even uh, short of that being a working engineer and, or working as an engineer as a project manager or something like that which I found fascinating because it gave me a little bit more encouragement to pursue my engineering degrees without having to worry that I was going to have to prove myself as an engineer ever and, and that's the way it worked out because after graduate school I went in the Air Force to do my duty and was assigned to the Air Force's premier uh, weapons laboratory in New Mexico and I was a project manager on some very important scary stuff and enjoyed it enormously but that's as close as I ever came to actually practicing nuclear engineering. We used to blow up bombs underground outside of Las Vegas and analyze the effects of those bombs on uh, different combinations of uh, esoteric materials like boron and carbide mixtures and things like that to see what would happen to them. And it's a good thing we never got into a shooting war because every experiment we ever ran, stringing out these things out in the tunnels away from the blast got blown to smithereens. So <laughs> it wouldn't have worked if we had ever had to depend on those materials to protect the missiles. That's another long story that I won't get into at the moment, but I, I hope that answers your question to some degree. I've sort of even forgotten what it was at this point. Can you remind us of where you went to graduate school? University of Washington, Seattle, Washington, one of the finest cities in the world. <laughs> Do you visit ever? Hardly ever. I don't think I've been back there three times in all these years. Uh, not because I don't want to, just because I don't have many excuses to go out to the West Coast. It, it really... You know, I think um, people are either East Coast or West Coast people, and I'm an East Coast person. And Why did you decide to go to Seattle? To Seattle, for <laughs> because it was as far away from New York as I could get, <laughs> and they were paying me a handsome graduate fellowship stipend to go there. And um, I said, wow, this looks exotic. The University of Virginia offered me one, too, as did Virginia Tech. And I thought, well, Virginia is the kind of place that, you know, who knows, maybe I'll even wind up someday at Virginia. So instead, though, I said, you know, University of Washington looked like it was a million miles away. And even then, when we didn't have the internet and you couldn't research things quite so efficiently as you can today, uh, I was able to get some information. Of course, they sent me lots of color brochures, and they said it's a beautiful country out here. They didn't tell you how much it rained. Uh, <laughs> But it's a soft rain. It's a very Irish rain. It, it, it doesn't storm all that much. It just kind of drips from Labor Day to Easter, approximately. Um, and then the rest of the year, it's lovely, most of the time. But it's a great place to go to school, and it was huge. I mean, I went to a relatively small private college of 3,000 undergraduates 
in New York City, at the outer edge of New York City. It literally was up against the, um, you know, the Westchester County line and the river on the other side, the Hudson River. So it, was, it wasn't downtown, midtown Manhattan, even though it was called Manhattan College and still is, uh, because that's where it was originally formed on the island of Manhattan many, many years ago. But they moved way out into the outer hinterlands in the 1920s, I guess, uh, but kept the name. Anyhow, out in Washington, University of Washington had something like, even then, 22, 23,000 students. And they were on a quarter system instead of a semester system. So you'd go, you know, approximately 10 weeks, 12 weeks at a time. And um, that was, you know, where I grew up, everybody who was going to college got in, I mean, got out in four years. If you didn't get out in four years, there was something really wrong with you or you were a pariah. It was just unthinkable. At University of Washington, even in the mid-60s, it was very laissez-faire. People would drop in and drop out. You know, they'd go for a couple of quarters, they'd come out, they'd make some money, come back, pay for another quarter or two. Um, it's really something. They're, they're, most of them were on the six-year plan, approximately. Uh, whatever that number of quarters adds up to, to graduate, they would take five, six years routinely. Uh, maybe a majority graduated in four years, but it didn't seem that way. Of course, we were graduate students, so we didn't pay the, so much attention to the undergraduates anyway. But it was a great place. I learned to ski there. I learned to sail there. And I got through my master's degree in one full 12-month year. And you know, was out of there. I would have loved to have stayed, but I had been commissioned in the U.S. Air Force, and it was time to go, so I had to go. Was it the time of the Vietnam War? Yeah, Vietnam War was really cranking up, and by the time I went on active duty in the fall of 1966, uh, things were really starting to heat up, and people were being killed in great numbers, and. Um, those of us who were assigned to the weapons lab had the highest security clearance in the land. I don't know whether people in the White House have a higher one, but we were trusted with the deepest, darkest secrets that the military had. And um, the joke was that um, we, were, we knew too much to be sent overseas because we'd spill it if we ever got caught by anybody. Uh, and, and in fact, Albuquerque was rife with spies. I mean, they were, I never met one as far as I know, but we were told every week to keep your mouth shut, watch who you say things to, don't say anything more than you absolutely have to, uh, and so on and so forth. And the CIA was recruiting down there. Uh, it was a very interesting time. And of course, the war was very unpopular. So if you went into, if you went off the base into town to, for whatever reason, like I was taking a graduate program in uh, public administration, and sometimes I'd have to rush right from work at the lab to a class, and I'd still have my uniform on. And at, at that time, unlike now, uh, wearing a uniform was not, I mean, it was a courageous thing to do. People, especially in the university community down there, were anti-war. And by 1967, 68, um, they were very anti-war. You just had to show up and take it. And if anybody, nobody really had the courage to come up to you and insult you, because if they did, they they would never have done it twice. And um, that's one of the things you do when growing up in New York City is you don't take 
and stuff like that from people. How long were you doing that type of work in the Air Force? 66 to 70. And then I came here in 1970 and to our mutual amazement, I suspect, I went right to work for Governor Linwood Holton in charge of his brand new emphasis on the environment. He created a governor's council on the environment out of thin air and told me to get all these different agencies running in the same direction at the same speed, working together. Well, how did you learn about Lin the governor and this program he wanted to start? Well, now this is very important especially for younger people, because uh, they don't teach this stuff in school. I don't think they do today even, even though we know much more today than we did 40 years ago. Um, when I was in the Air Force, it was normal to serve a four-year you know, period, and then you get out unless you wanted to stay and make a career of it, which I thought about, and, and I was encouraged to by my superiors, general officers really wanted me to stay. They had a whole career path figured out, and I was still young enough that I didn't know that you could actually stay in the military and forge a career of your own making in the military just like you can in civilian life. I thought if you were in the military, boy, you just went where they sent you. Well, if you think about that for more than 10 seconds, you realize that's just as stupid for them as it would be for you to let random assignments determine what you would do with whatever talents you have. I mean, the, the Air Force, um, leadership wants to make the best use of the people they have just as presumably people want to make the best use of their own talents but it took me a little while to figure that out and one of the ways I figured it out was uh, um, I don't know if they still do this today but uh, there was a, a weekly newspaper put out by the same publisher with slightly different emphasis uh, each week in its editions for the Air Force Times, the Army Times, the Navy Times, and maybe they even had a Marine Times, I don't know. Um, now it may be just the Armed Forces Times or something like that. But several parts of each edition were the same, and just different services got different emphasis in the different editions, I guess. And so I read the Air Force Times faithfully every week when it came out. And about a year, year and a quarter or so before I was scheduled to get out, I started paying attention to a column written by a fellow named John Crystal, and his column was all about what are you going to do when you get out of the Air Force? And he was principally aiming his remarks at career Air Force officers who had put in 20 years, let's say. Now, when you're 25 years old, 20 years in the Air Force looks like an eternity. And in fact, I was accepted for uh, flight training. I was going to be a jet pilot. And when I found out they wanted an additional seven years of my life, I said, I don't think so. As much fun as I would have loved to have flown those new jets that they were coming out with. I, I, at the age of, when, I, when that happened, I was 24, I think, 23 or 24. Um, the prospect of seven years really did look like an eternity. And of course, nowadays you look back and say, well, you know, if you really wanted to do that, you should have done it. But obviously, I didn't really want to do it, or I would have. So John Crystal wrote this article for people getting out. Uh, but it was just as applicable to younger people once you got into it. And each week, he, he had developed a, a series that he wrote over a period of weeks and months 
taking people through a step-by-step process of answering the question, where do I go from here with my life? And he would start, for example, with, well, what have you done? And people in the military have a terrible way of describing what they do because they have their own language, which doesn't translate easily to civilian language. And so he was teaching them, you know, instead of saying, you know, I was a project manager for, or I was a captain in charge of a nuclear deterrence program or something like that, he would say, I was the executive in charge of a multi-million dollar effort to so on and so forth. In other words, telling the truth, but telling it in terms that civilians could relate to, translating and getting to the essence, the skills, rather than the particular lingo. So get beyond the jargon, get to what you actually did, and organize it in a way that identified your skills and talents, and then eventually your interests and preferences, and the kinds of people and organizations you want to work with and be most productive in, where do you want to live, how do you want to live, etc., and so on. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I was just fascinated by this. And I said, gosh, this guy makes so much sense. So I called him up. Uh, He was in McLean, Virginia. And uh, I said, I am just absolutely fascinated by your writings. And uh, so the be all and end all of that was I signed up for his um, training, his his teaching, his mentoring of how to help me figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Because I had a pretty good idea what I did not want to do which was stay in the Air Force and work on nuclear weapons. I wanted to do something more positive, but I didn't know what. And I figured I needed help uh, to do that. And of course, when you have technical training and education, you tend to think that you are forever stuck in that. And that's certainly not true, despite what the guy told me in college, that you know, 80% of you will not be practicing engineering in a few years. It, you know, I'd sort of temporarily forgotten that, or I hadn't figured out how, how you actually realize getting from a technical specialty into something else that you wanted to do with your life. And so I started, the way John Krista worked at that time was you would, he would send you a questionnaire first, you know, basic stuff. Then he would say, okay, write your autobiography and be very specific about everything that of value to you that you've ever done that you think you know was enjoyable productive produced good results and be as specific as you can about how you did that whether it was in high school or college or in the air force or in graduate school or you know in your community and i'm thinking gosh you know this is I'm only 25 years old, 26 years old maybe at most. And I think I started when I was 25. But anyway, I said, I don't have a life yet. What can I write about? And he says, you'd be surprised. Go to it. So I spent three or four weeks doing that. And I, it was surprising. It was, I don't know, 40, 50 pages worth of stuff. And uh, again, we didn't have computers. So it was all typewritten and, you know, and anywho. I sent that in, and what he would do with that, that would be sort of like his, his, um, his gold mine, and he'd have to dig out and dig through all the detritus in there to come up with the nuggets that, in effect, said what you did, how you did it, and the skills you used in doing so. And 
that's what he was really looking for is the skill sets. And you'd be amazed what he found. Any of, any of us would be, or most of us have so many more talents and skills than we ever understand, including the most obvious ones, which we don't realize are obvious skills because we do them so naturally, such as talking. And, um, you know, not everybody has that ability. And that doesn't mean they're bad and I'm good. It means that we have different talents. So he sent me back. He sent me back this long, about four or five, six pages, single space typed skills. It just went on. I think it numbered about 700 or so. I couldn't believe it. I was stunned. And yet when I read through them, I could say, yes, yeah, I've done that. I've used that. I've, I've done this. And I, I called him back up. I said, this is amazing. He says, no, nah, it's pretty typical. I said, I'm just astounded. He says, well, now the trick is to organize them and, you know, do the reverse, turn them around, not, not only organize them into 10 or 12 different categories of skills like communications, say, um, or uh, project management or, you know, 10 other things, but then to go back and do the reverse and say, okay, here's where and how I used this particular skill set and this is what I accomplished. And then eventually, although he never really believed in resumes, he would help you translate that into a one-page, extremely tightly packed resume that listed at the top, what is it you really wanted to do? My objective is to do such and so with such and so in the kind of environment that, in other words, a very, very specific objective aimed at a very specific type of field of work, not a, eventually a particular organization, but that would come with the cover letter to target it even further. And then the rest of it broke down your skill sets, like project management, communications, and under each skill heading, you would put in two or three demonstrations of what you actually had accomplished. Not your interests, not your activities, but your actual accomplishments using those skills. And. Uh, Needless to say, in the great world of work at the time, with a lot of people looking for work, um, not many people had this type of approach. And so your resume tended to stand out, if only because nobody had ever seen anything quite like it before. And in fact, I remember one federal agency sent it back, you know, politely declining any further interest. But they had marked all over it with exclamation points and my goodness, or really, you know, it, it, was, it was really kind of a compliment in a way. The personnel people, of course, you learned not to talk to them because they only were roadblocks. Uh, the people you always wanted to talk to were the people who could actually hire you. And that meant you had to do research to figure out, A, what organizations interested in you, interested you and why, and then who in that organization, whether it's public, private, or nonprofit, had the power to hire you to do what you wanted to do for them that was of mutual benefit. And uh, I had the greatest fun. I spent almost a year full and part-time interviewing, researching, talking, <coughs> just having a great old time with all these people. And if it had paid better, I'd still be doing it. It was just so much fun because you learned everywhere you went and you talked to people who shared your interests. So um, you didn't have any problem getting them to talk. Because you'd say, well, how did you get interested in this? Or what brought you to MITRE Corporation? Or what brought you to this field? Or whatever it might be. And, you know, off they went. 
and you just mostly sat there and listened. And after you did all that, then you'd finally start narrowing down your targets to say, okay, I really want to work for Virginia Historical Society and so on and so forth. And you'd find the one person there who could hire you to do what you wanted to do. And you made a proposal to them and said, I think you need to hire me in so many words because I can make your life easier, bring the Historical Society more money, and overall raise your profile or whatever it is that you thought you could do for them. And it was just wonderful, fun stuff. And then it's, it's like everything else in life. Uh, once you have a clear idea of who you are and what you're interested in, what your parameters in life are, where you want to live, and I decided Virginia was where I wanted to live. And when I moved here, I sent a note to the governor, and this is where luck always plays a part, saying, Dear Governor, <laughs> you know, I've just moved to your state and I'm looking forward to meeting you someday, but in the meanwhile, if there's anything I can ever do to help you, um, please give me a call. And I enclosed this incredible resume that had been prepared with my, well, I'd prepared it with John's help. And I really didn't think twice about it because the governor and the government is not anything I was interested in. I'd done four years of government. I'd had enough of that. Uh, I learned a lot, but I, you know, I wanted to do something different. And I, I, was, I had concluded by that time saving the world and the environment in particular was my calling in life. It really was. And one of the things that John Crystal made you do was to find your life goal. It was very important that you had a goal in life big enough one to encompass several strategies and objectives along the way, but one, you know, that said, in my case, for example, my goal in life is to improve the quality of the environment by promoting interdisciplinary communication, education, and social cooperation. I can still remember it after all these years because I've been doing it and living it ever since. And um, as it turns out, that letter and resume landed on the governor's executive aide's desk just about the time they were creating the Council on the Environment and looking for someone to lead it. And what I wanted to do in my job objective and in the kind of skills I had was exactly what they were looking for. And so this fellow called me up and said, uh, the governor is very interested in, uh, in you. Uh, could you meet with one of his closest advisors who was in Washington, a private investment banker, and I met with him, and I met with two or three other people, including Jerry Bemis here in Richmond, who was one of the, the three people who formed the executive committee of this council. And they were three very different people with different personalities, different skill sets. They brought different things to the table. And um, I guess I must have done all right with each of them because the next thing I knew, I got a phone call saying the governor would like to appoint you as head of the Governor's Council on the Environment. Could you please come down and fill out the paperwork and get to work? <laughs> and that's the first time I met Governor Holton was that summer. And um, Were you very surprised to receive that letter? Well, after I'd met with the people, I wasn't too surprised. But if you had told me six months earlier that I would be coming out of the Air Force at the end of March and starting work for the Governor of Virginia, in you know the end of this you know, the middle of the summer i would have said who what i didn't even know who the governor of virginia was now in his book he, he hasn't got it entirely correctly in his book that came out last year he says that they found jerry mccarthy in the state bureaucracy somewhere that, that's not true as i've told him <laughs> and uh, and as others have subsequently told him but you know 
it's a great story, and, and he, he must be Irish at heart because the Irish never let the facts get in the way of a good story. And, uh, and his book is wonderful. I read it all at one sitting uh, one day last summer. I just went right on through it in a Sunday afternoon, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I was very honored that he chose to mention two or three different times in his book the good work that his environmental people did for him, including yours truly. So that was a, a very special gift to see. And so that's what I did for the next, gosh, for the rest of the four years of his term. And then when Governor Godwin got reelected and came back, I did my, what was expected, I guess what was expected, what do I know? I, w I asked for a 10-minute meeting with the new governor to turn in my resignation, and I had a letter of resignation. I carried it in with me, and we sat down. I'd never met Mills Godwin before, and he didn't know me either. And, you know, at this time, I was all of 30 years old. And uh, as he later found out, after we were talking for about 40 minutes or so, way past the allotted time, we were having such a good time. He really was a charming man and, and very bright and very, very knowledgeable about all things Virginia. Uh, I, I was having a great time talking with him. And at one point he looked at me because he'd asked me more about my background. I told him about the Air Force and blowing up bombs and all this stuff. And he said, how old are you anyway? And I said, I'm 30, sir. And he says, my God, you're just a boy. <laughs> and... Uh, I said, well, okay. Um, and then we went on. We were there for almost an hour and a half, I guess. And uh, I said, well, what do you want me to do with this letter? He says, put it away. <laughs> Get rid of that. He says, I hope you'll stay. And I said, I'd be honored to stay. And he says, and I hope you'll call me anytime you've got something to say to me. I can't promise I'll agree with you, but I want to hear what you have to say. Because um, by that time, they changed the makeup of the council a little bit and I was both its chairman as well as its chief executive and administrator so I didn't have to report through a board to get to see the governor I could see the governor if he wanted to see me and he told me he would and I took him up on it a few times and sometimes I won what I wanted and sometimes I didn't and that's the nature of working for a governor you don't win them all anybody who thinks that is in the wrong business so he and I got along fine, and then after three and a half years of that or so, the endowment was created, and they asked me to start that, and that's how we got to here. When you started at the council, I wondered, um, did you have anyone to kind of assist you in terms of helping you get settled and yes, yes. figure out the different agencies you would want to work Absolutely. With? Yeah, the governor's staff was very helpful, and one fellow in particular who was the one whose desk this landed on, he, he was the governor's executive assistant. I always called him for hiring and firing because he carried out the governor's wishes with respect to executive decision-making. If the governor said, you know, I want to hire someone, go find someone to do this, he'd go find someone or candidates and recommend them. Uh, if he wanted to get rid of someone, he'd, you know, tell this guy that we need to get somebody else and because you know, remember when Governor Holton was elected he was the first change in Virginia administration in 50 years or so um, had been run by the same old line Democratic uh, bird organization send a bird organization which whatever you think of it it had been in power for 50 years at least and so when Governor Holton as a Republican comes in the Republicans of his kind in his day were the, the progressives. Uh, 
and a lot of people might be shocked to hear that, but uh, they were the, you know, his, the two things he talked about in his inaugural address were uh, improving race relations in the Commonwealth and improving the quality of the environment in Virginia. That was pretty much it. And that would have been unthinkable, you know, a few years earlier. Um, and he did those things, and he did them very effectively. And he had a couple of people who were in charge of each one. I was the environmental person, and this other fellow was in charge of race relations. He created a special office of, I don't know what it's called, but I think it was Office of Race Relations or something like that. And that fellow, uh, Robertson, I think his name was, was a really good fellow and did a great job. And, of course, the governor set the standard by walking his children over to the public schools and all of that. So he walked the walk. He didn't just uh, talk about it. He did it. And that he used to keep a sign on his desk that said, today is opportunity time. Do something. So action was much better than talk in his administration. If you screwed up, that was better than not doing anything. Action was the watchword. So um, where was I going with all that? I was wondering, just to go back for one question about your thought process in figuring out what you really wanted to do. Oh, the aid, the aid, the aid. I'm sorry. And, and the, this guy who did all the hiring and firing for him, we shared an office for the first three months or so, and he taught me a lot about the bureaucracy and who was who and how to deal with different people and so on and so forth. So anyway. I was wondering, at that time, in terms of students and universities, was uh, were environmental issues really coming to the front? People were much noticing more well, we had just had the very first Earth Day. It was April 22nd, 1970. And I started, you know, three or four, three, four, three, three, four months after that. And um, so the environment was a very popular subject. We had Earth Day in April, the first time. We had the Environmental Protection Agency was created um, that year. The... Uh, Council on Environmental Quality in the Federal Office of the President was created. The National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, took effect January 1st of that year. Um, the, um, the nation and college campuses and various new groups were being formed or had just recently been formed. The Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund, a lot of national groups like that. State groups had some of their counterpart, you know, groups. Um, and so there was a lot more activism on the subject of the environment than, than was the case, say, maybe 10, 12 years later, uh, or maybe even now, although now we're starting to see a little bit more interest in it again, I think. But it, it kind of ebbed and flowed over the years. But in 1970, it was hard to ignore the environment. It was everywhere. It's a public policy matter, and that's, you know, that's what we do is public policy. I wondered if before we um, spend a great deal of time on the council and the VEE, if I could uh, get a feel for how you feel about um, general environmental issues. Um, I was wondering, um, could you give me a general assessment on whether you think improvement has been made in your lifetime in improving our nation's overall environmental health? Yes, absolutely. The, um, 
I always think of it this way. Some of the things we're doing today were considered radical years ago when I started. For example, in um, the very first annual report ever on the condition of Virginia's environment, it was put out by the Governor's Council on the Environment. I'm sure it's in the State Library. You might actually want to try to talk them into making a copy for you uh, for these archives. Uh, I think it came out in December of 71, but I'm not positive, but that sounds about right. Um, if you read through the topics covered in that report, you will see a certain similarity to topics that are still uh, current today. But one of the sentences I wrote in that report was, land use is a fundamental determinant of environmental quality. Now, in 1971, to talk about land use and the environment was to ask for being labeled a communist. In fact, uh, I remember we got rid of a whole state agency because they refused to learn how to speak terms language that people in Virginia could relate to. They, they had a, a very noble idea of protecting green space and open space and what they called critical environmental areas in the state. How they were going to do this was less clear, which was one problem. The second problem was that they had, in a tone-deaf way, picked beauty spots in just about every part of the Commonwealth and had neglected to, you know, consult with, say, the people who owned these very nice properties and put out a book, a report, saying here are the critical areas that need protection in the Commonwealth. And people, you know, they're looking at this stuff and they hey, that's my property you're talking about. Uh, nobody asked me about that. And they went out and held public hearings, and I went along to a couple of them. And I remember out to southwest Virginia one time, I thought we were going to be hung, hanged, whatever. Uh, they were really upset, calling us pinkos and commies and everything else like that because we were going to grab their land, which I had no intention of doing, and it wasn't my report anyway, although I certainly thought the idea of protecting critically important environmentally sensitive areas was a very good one, and as it turns out, that has become a major part of our work over the decades, but we've done it in a way that respects property rights and people's values and so on and so forth, but this crowd, they were planners, and land use planners are nice people, but they're a little naive sometimes about turning their visions into reality and the politics of what it takes to actually do that sort of stuff. And they got so many people in the legislature so annoyed with them that the legislature abolished the whole agency. <laughs> What's the name of the agency? It was called the Division of State Planning and Community Affairs, and uh, may it rest in peace. Did you recommend that it be... You know, I, I don't think I recommended it, but I was not unhappy to get rid of it because they kept getting in the way with their, their what's that word I want? Um, not Homeric or, or um, you know, their, their really idealistic um, view of things. They, they had no practical sense, I don't think. Um, they meant extremely well, and, and sure enough, the decades have proven that the core of their ideas were sound, but the way they went about them just invited disaster. And that's what happened. And um, so off they went. And uh, 
they were seen as a central state planning agency that would, you know, by those who saw them this way as, you know, people who would grab their land and, and you know, tell, tell them what to do with their land and all those terribly communistic ideas that some people uh, feared of. And um, consequently, they got in political hot water and they were wiped out. Um, and it took a couple of years to get past that before we could ever talk about land use again. Uh, because it left such a bad taste in everybody's mouth. But eventually we did. Uh, and today we have the situation that um, not only do we talk about land use much more easily, but we have all kinds of laws in place in Virginia now that protect land, that has have money to purchase land to protect it, that even link land use and transportation so that the two have to be compatible now uh, with local land use decision making and state transportation planning for roads and such, um, whether it's suburban development roads or major roads and highways. Um, that's all new and that's all sort of normal today. Whereas if we tried to do anything like that three or four decades ago, we really would have been run out of town. So I think just to look at the big picture, one of the things I do see is, in fact, how much progress has been made in the last 40 years and how clean the water is, how clean the air is compared to then. It doesn't mean we still don't face challenges, because we do. Uh, the whole business of climate change is, is kind of an overwhelming topic um, and hard to get a grip on for some people. That's what I wanted to ask you. How do you feel about global warming? Is it really happening? <laughs> Yes, and I'll just skip the editorial and just answer it, yes. It's really happening, and uh, the question is rapidly becoming how do we adapt to it rather than whether we can do a whole lot about preventing it. And, and that's an amazing situation when you think about it. Um, there's so much going on already that's already happened that will take years to play itself out, but even if every greenhouse gas that is currently emitted were stopped today, there would still be buildup of greenhouse gases for decades, and that would still have effects on the world's climate and um, ecosystems. People don't get ecosystems. The, 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 there's only one world that we have here. You know, we can't sort of fly off to the moon when we've messed up this one. This is, this is it. This is the real world that we live in, and so many people are illiterate when it comes to understanding how the real world works. The real world works according to scientific principles. This is not some liberal Democrat politician's idea of the way things ought to be. This is science. And it's just mind-boggling to me that people are so ignorant and illiterate on the subject of how the real world works. And ecosystems are deteriorating around the globe and some of that is caused by climate change. Some of it is caused by rapacious agricultural um, activities, uh, incredible pollution occurring in places. You know, we may have really cleaned up our act in Virginia, um, but that's not true around the world. And um, unfortunately, ecosystems affect each other. So 
if people are still screwing up ecosystems in other parts of the world, that will sooner or later, if, if it goes far enough, wide enough, and long enough, will affect what goes on here. And I remember in 1991, I went to Italy in April. And 1991, you may recall, was the first Gulf War. And it was a short, brief encounter with Saddam Hussein that ended quickly. Um, but despite everybody, Saddam Hussein set fire to hundreds of oil wells, which gushed incredible amounts of crap and smoke into the air. Well, that air drifted northward into Europe. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, the skies over Europe were gray and cloudy and rainy. And when I got to Italy in the early spring, uh, the weather, which should have been beautiful at that time of year, was in fact lousy, cold, rainy, and dusty. And all the Italians just would point with disgust sort of in that direction and say, it's all Saddam Hussein's fault. And it was Saddam Hussein's fault. So what he did there affected the climate in Southern Europe, maybe Northern Europe too, I don't know, but certainly in Southern Europe. And, and that's just an example of how what one person, a dictator in this case, could do that would affect millions of other people in their climate and their environment. And, and that kind of thing could happen. Uh, and it happens usually more subtly because we don't have dictators doing crazy things all the time, thank goodness but we do have people doing things that are not right all the time. And that builds up and it, it has its effect on things. In the 1970s, were you aware much of what was going on in other states? Oh yes. Of what you were doing? Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I've always, I've always said that one of the most important questions any person ought to ask about what they're doing is compared to what. And so we would always look at how Virginia shaped up against other places and whether we were in the forefront or lagging behind or whether we could learn from other states or not. But at least we asked the question and we always looked. How do you feel Virginia compared at that time? I don't know. I think we had a governor in Holton who was among the leaders of the governors around the country. Um, he and um, Governor Andrus of Idaho Governor Carter of Georgia, um, Governor of Arkansas, Dale Bumpers. Uh, these were the four governors who were the core of the National Governors Association, uh, or maybe it was the Southern Governors Association, I can't remember which, Environmental Committee. And uh, I always used to get to go to those meetings because Governor Holton was also on the Executive Committee and they usually met at the same time. So. I got to sit there with, you know, Governor Carter, Governor Bumpers, uh, maybe it was the national governors because I think, I know I met Governor Andrus and he certainly wasn't a southerner, so perhaps that's what it was. And of course I didn't really engage that actively, but it was fun. They're, they were trying to do the right thing. So we were a leader and, and in, in that sense, um, it's important for Virginians uh, and historians of Virginia to know that um, Governor Holton was an environmental leader during his term and 
that Virginians were among the first to adopt a state constitution in 1971 that contained Article 11, uh, the conservation article, which says that it is the policy of the Commonwealth to protect its atmosphere, lands, and waters from pollution, impairment, or destruction. So help me God, every single person who swears an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of Virginia from the town clerk to the county board of supervisors to the members of the General Assembly and the governor and anybody else who is sworn in, whether they know it or not, they are swearing by God to protect Virginia's environment. And I guarantee you most of them have no clue that that's what they're doing. So I've made it part of my life's work to educate them. I carry it around in my, in my pocket here come up with a little copy of Article 11 of the Constitution. You can add that to your collection. Thank you. And it, you know, I can quote it by heart because I've been doing <laughs> it for so long. But it's very important. And Virginia was one of the first states ever to put that in its Constitution. So it is a constitutional mandate, even though um, most legislators and most governors don't realize it. How do we compare now to other states? I don't know. I suppose to say that we're a leader uh, is true in some respects. Um, it's more complicated now because there are many more topics and there are many different issues that we have um, in each state that are... The world is a lot more complicated place. I wouldn't... I, I'd want to think about that one and, and answer you more accurately than just say, oh, Virginia's number one. I don't know what number one means anymore when it comes to protecting the environment. Because every time you think you've got something, you find that it's a little bit like trying to nail jello to the wall. You know, it's just not that simple. And um, there are other factors. You know, somebody might have a better clean air law, but we might have a better clean water law. We've got a really pretty good clean water law, and it's been in place since 1946. And it was a really good law in the early 70s when I was involved in it because it allowed the State Water Control Board to uh, shut down development if the capacity of the sewage treatment systems was uh, breached. And for example, the Roanoke area, the Northern Virginia area, and the um, Hampton Roads area were all issuing development permits for you know suburban development uh, and building pipes that were overloading their sewage treatment plant's capacity to treat the stuff. <coughs> and the Water Control Board, which Holton appointed, was a very aggressive board. And they warned these people. They said, don't do it. We're going to shut you down if you do that. And they said, <laughs> and they went all those localities, Fairfax and whoever down in Hampton Roads and Roanoke, they all did it. And the Water Control Board shut them down declared a moratorium, which was legally their right to do, on new sewer hookups because the capacity was already exceeded. And boy, did that stop things in a hurry and got people's attention. And unfortunately, the next year, the legislature came back in like 1975 or thereabouts and uh, repealed that part of the law. Well, one of the stupidest things ever to be done because that was a really good stick to have in place when you started messing up the environment deliberately, there ought to have been a way to stop that, and there was. And that legislature in 75 or so deserves my vote for the 
you know, the hall of shame uh, for repealing that piece of water law, that Virginia was a real leader in it at the time, and which, uh, you know, it forfeited. That was a huge, huge step backward in favor of development trumps water quality. It was an awful piece of legislation. Now, we have other measures to take the place. Well, it's more complicated. Um, there, no, there's nothing quite like that. Um, local governments, and this to me is part of the future that we have to deal with. Um, for a long time, as I said, even since we wrote that line that land use is a fundamental determinant of environmental quality, regardless of state laws, regardless of federal laws, most of the decisions that affect a community's look, feel, ability to function are made by local governments. And local governments, until recently, have not had the environment as a principal factor in their decision making. Uh, whether they still, whether they have yet, is an interesting question. But they're more and more paying attention to it. And we have funded any number of things over the last decade or so to to show local governments how they could do a better job of protecting their natural resources while still allowing development to proceed in ways that don't screw up the environment. And that's um, a tough fight because of the way the tax system is structured in Virginia. Local governments get the lion's share of their revenue from developing property. If, um, if you have a bare field and it's paying $100 a year in taxes and it could be turned into a shopping mall to pay $100,000 in taxes or more, what are you going to do if you're sitting there on the Board of Supervisors? You know, the economic incentives are upside down when it comes to conservation. And until that changes, it's going to be tough to make wholesale changes in, the, in making conservation a real constitutional priority for local governments. So, and, and that gets into a whole matter of, well, you know, that's the tax system. What's that got to do with the environment? Well, it's got everything to do with the environment. Uh, on the one hand, the tax system gives favorable treatment to people who donate conservation easements on their farm property, for example, because it allows, because it's not going to be its highest and best use of, uh, you know, a, a super mall it's going to be a farm instead it gets taxed first of all like a farm and it's going to stay a farm because you've got an easement on it now and then that easement itself is worth something that translates into a tax credit for the farmer and it can only it, it has a limit i forget what the limit is right now but let's say it's um five hundred thousand dollars over five years well if if somebody exhausts that tax credit or can't use it all, like say your income is $60,000 a year and you know you don't need a $500,000 tax credit, you can then sell that tax credit that's over and above what you need. And so there's become a secondary market in trading, buying and selling tax credits for conservation easements. It's a very lucrative business for a few people. So that is one way where the tax code actually encourages conservation and Virginia actually is a leader in that, in land conservation and using easements and giving favorable tax treatment for donating conservation easements. I don't know that there's a state that is ahead of Virginia on that. 
and that Virginia has been a leader for a long time in doing that. So that's one very positive thing we can say about Virginia is that on the environment, on conservation easements for land preservation, we probably are number one in that. On the other hand, the tax system also punishes conservation efforts if, for the local government, their revenue is so dependent on developmental uh, development of property so that it can be taxed at a higher level and produce more revenue for the local government to pay for schools and fire stations and sheriff's offices and whatever else they use it for to provide other public services which they need to provide and they need the revenue to do that and the only place they really get it is from personal property taxes or land taxes um, real estate taxes rather they get it from personal property taxes too but I'm talking about real estate taxes here and somehow that has to be decoupled um, local revenue sources if they continue to depend on the real estate tax that's not a long-term good strategy for protecting conserving Virginia's natural resources. And in fact, if you think about it, and I don't know if this is liberal, conservative, or, or what, I don't care what label people put on it, but why in the world do we tax things that you know people work hard for, their income, their property, instead of taxing how they waste resources, consumption, like the gas tax is a consumption tax. It's a great tax. You pay in direct proportion to the amount of driving you do and the amount of wear and tear you put on the road system in Virginia. It's a very fair, equally applied tax. And if you don't drive much, you don't pay much. If you drive a lot, you pay more. It's a very good example of a consumption tax. It doesn't affect your income, and it doesn't affect your property they get a pass on that tax. And I think we really ought to be given more thought to how we can re recast the tax system in ways that are environmentally friendly, which means you tax consumption rather than income and property. And, and that's, I think, I don't know how we're going to do that, but I think it would be an interesting topic for the endowment board to discuss one of these days. Um, because when you think it through, you say, wow, that makes a certain amount of sense. Because wasteful consumption is what's polluting the environment. So if you tax the things that are bad for you and you reward things that are good for you, you know, chances are people's behavior is going to change a little bit. And that's really what you want to do is to get people to act in ways that protect, conserve, and improve the environment rather than pollute, destroy, and wreck the environment. And the tax system is a very mixed blessing uh, strategically right now in that regard. It helps on land conservation, but it also hurts on land conservation. It's a two-edged sword. I wanted to um, ask if it would be helpful to define some things that people on the outside would say, oh, that's simple, but I think there's far more to each of these types of work that you do, and I think just a, a simple general definition of what air pollution, what water pollution is, and uh, more about land resource conservation, just a general definition of, of what we're talking about. Well, 
air pollution comes in many, many forms, but usually it's gaseous emissions of one kind or another, whether it's nitrogen oxides or sulfur dioxides or even now carbon dioxide um, particles, sulfur particles, um, things that are produced from power plants, for example, or tailpipe emissions from cars and trucks and SUVs, uh, things like that. Oh, well, they got chicken. Put a new cassette in there. That was only one side. It was. I was just kidding. Uh, doing a good job. Doing a good job here. You're following my plan. Oh, good. <laughs> Everything you say, then it triggers. Oh, that's my <laughs> next question. <laughs> okay. You get to go. Okay. And, you know, water pollution is dumping all kinds of toxic nonsense. Um, water pollution is a little bit easier for people to grasp because we've made so much progress on that. It used to be, 40 years ago, pipes led out of factories just discharging their waste, their leftovers, their, their resources that they transformed into plastics or whatever product they were making and what wasn't used in that was wasted and came out the back end and it polluted. Um, most industrial pollution has pretty much gone away now because they learned, many companies did, that it was a waste of their own money. Um, the whole point of manufacturing is to be efficient in your manufacturing process. So if you are 50% efficient, i.e. You take a raw material, you use 50% of it to make a product, and the other 50% goes out the back door into the water or the air, you know, you're wasting your own money. So they've learned how to do much more about preventing pollution in the first place, which really ought to be the strategy for all of this. At the endowment, we talk about uh, getting all sectors, public, private, nonprofit, to work together to protect the environment by preventing pollution, conserving natural resources, and improving environmental literacy. So when you talk about preventing pollution in the first place, you're actually talking about an economic good from the polluter's point of view. They don't really want to be a polluter because, among other reasons, it's a waste of their money. They don't want to waste resources. If they can make their processes 100% efficient, that's a good thing for them. And more and more of them have learned how to do that in the last decade. The Governor's Environmental Excellence Awards program is sponsored by the Virginia Manufacturers Association every year. And every year there are dozens and dozens of companies that submit projects for consideration for a first or second place award that shows how they have prevented pollution, reduced their emissions, and improved their bottom line, because those are the criteria. You have to lower your emissions of whatever kind, and in doing so, you have to prove that you have improved your bottom line as well. If you don't do that, you're not eligible for the competition, but you'd be amazed at how many companies are eligible and who have saved God knows how many millions and millions of dollars that have gone directly into their owner's pockets whether they be the private owner of a smaller corporation or public shareholders of a larger corporation, they're all doing better because they are eliminating and reducing their pollution in the first place. So pre pollution prevention is really, well, let me put this in context for you. Um, 100 plus years ago, in the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, when people first started paying attention to maybe disease was caused by waterborne pollution of some kind or another, 
you had a public policy that was basically pollution at will. Factories, municipalities, discharges, just dumped it all into the creek or the river, the James River. If you noticed how Richmond originally developed, all the riverfront was facing town, and it was the back door that was exposed to the James River, because that's where the pipes went, and that's when all the pollution went out the back door into the river. So pollution at will was the norm. Somewhere around the 1930s, when people were looking for ways to fight their way out of the Great Depression and find jobs and public works projects and whatnot, people started realizing that maybe we can treat some of this stuff. So there was a great period from the 30s through the 50s and 60s, let's say, of controlling pollution. So pollution control came to the fore by finding some sort of elementary way to treat these water toxic pollution discharges. So you built sewage treatment plants at factories and at municipalities. They didn't do a great job, but it was better than doing nothing. So you had pollution at will evolved into pollution control, where literally state and federal governments were handing out permission slips. They're called permits. A permit to discharge junk into the river. Now think about that for a minute. But that was a huge improvement because the permits limited how much you could discharge. Instead of pollution at will, now you could only dump half of it in there, let's say, or some such. There was a number, and you, you know, if you exceed that number, then you get in trouble with the government because you had exceeded your permit. Well, there's a whole story I could tell about how the permit process didn't really work all that well, but at least it was a step in the right direction. And that is officially still the public policy today, is that the state government of Virginia and every other state hands out permission slips to anybody who wants to discharge into the waters of the Commonwealth. You give them a permit. It's good for five years, and at the end of five years, you're supposed to come back and get a new permit. And what I've been proposing for years, and the state bureaucrats just love to hear it because they know it's not going to happen, in their lifetime, as I always stand up in, at public meetings at like Environment Virginia at VMI every year and say, you know what, we have to move from pollution at will through pollution control to prevention of pollution in the first place. I don't even want to see a permit system in this state. We ought to get rid of it because the next permit you give to somebody ought to be their last permit. You ought to tell them you got five years to clean up your act and prevent pollution. We're not giving you another permit. This is your last permit. You've got five years. Figure it out. Don't pollute in the first place. You'll save money. We'll protect the environment. And I remember telling that to Secretary um, uh, during the Governor Warner administration, uh, Taylor Murphy, when he was Secretary of Natural Resources, and after he had served in a very distinguished way as the leading conservationist in the House of Delegates for many years, I said, Mr. Secretary, listen. I think you ought to work towards a pollution prevention program and get rid of all these permits and you know make the last make each one you hand out now the last one, and then they won't have to get a permit to pollute because they won't be polluting anymore. And he says, "Oh, Jerry, we've already thought about that." And I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "We have a permit for no discharge." <laughs> I said, "You mean you you give them a permit not to discharge?" He said, "Oh yes." <laughs> and, uh, so they collect money on permits even when people aren't discharging. But the good news in that funny statement is that 
there are some who've figured out how not to discharge, like those who get awards from the Governor's Environmental Excellence Program through the Manufacturers Association. But I'm hoping that in this 21st century, you know, the 19th century was pollution at will, 20th century is permission to pollute, and the 21st century, I would hope, would be prevention of pollution. That's my water quality goal and strategy. I was on the Mattapanai River last weekend. I was with uh, Peter Defer and his mm. wife, Sharon. And as I understand, he's an environmental biologist. And now he's teaching um, at VCU. Mm. Uh, at one time, he had political aspirations. And I voted for him, but mm. that didn't work out, unfortunately. Nope. But I believe that you've known him for many years. Many years, since the 80s, I'm sure. And I read a sign as we were putting the boat in the water that warned, I believe, about the large, wide-mouth bass, that you shouldn't be consuming that from the Mattapanai. But Peter's general statement was that Mattapanai was in good shape. Relative to some places, I'm sure it is. I haven't heard of any restrictions on that, but there might be. You know, the health department does issue these warnings from time to time, but that's too much detail for me <laughs> to pay attention to on a daily basis. How about land resource conservation? Can you uh, explain just the major aspects of that? Well, you know, you take it for granted sometimes when you drive around Virginia. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth. We have, we really do have it all from the oceanfront to the mountains and beyond and the valleys in between and the coastal plain. And it's just a naturally beautiful state. And that doesn't just happen as it turns out. For example, if you drive um, north on 95 and get off, and head west uh, towards Culpeper, and then drive north or south from Culpeper up to uh, Loudoun in the north or down past Charlottesville to the south, you'll drive through some of the prettiest Piedmont uh, country anywhere. And you'll look around, you'll see these farms and these fences and these fields and the forests, and everything looks just gorgeous. And you say, wow. Isn't that beautiful? I wish it could always stay that way so that my children and their children could see this. Well, again, that doesn't just happen. Most of the owners of a lot of those properties have, in fact, donated conservation easements on those properties, so they will, in fact, stay that way. But if they didn't, because you'll see it in other parts of the Piedmont where they didn't, um, you will find some of those same fields, forests, and farms turned into subdivisions. Now, subdivisions are not a bad thing in and of themselves, but it depends very much on where they're located and how they're done uh, as to whether they're going to help or hurt the environment. But by and large, if you want to preserve the pretty views and vistas and the scenic character of the Piedmont or any other part of Virginia for that matter, you have to protect it. It doesn't just happen. And Virginia's strategy has been private protection for the most part. Virginia was the first state in the country to set up a state agency whose sole purpose was to protect the out of doors. Jerry Bemis, when he was a state senator, created the Virginia Outdoors Foundation. And that foundation is still a state agency after all these years, 43 years now, I think. And its job is to hold conservation easements on beautiful properties throughout uh, Virginia. 
it um, does so on a voluntary basis. They, they rarely have money to actually buy an easement from anyone. So they have, I've, I've long since lost track, but I'm sure they have well over 200,000 acres of land in Virginia protected under conservation easements that they hold and control themselves, um, all donated by people who wanted to preserve those scenes that you enjoy so much. And um, this was started in 1966, and I don't think there was another state in the country that was doing it in 1966. And they're still doing it today. It relates back to the tax credits, pardon me, that I spoke of earlier. That those are administered by the Outdoors Foundation, I believe. There's also a Virginia Land Conservation Foundation, another state agency, that hands out grants uh, for land conservation. There is the Department of Conservation and Recreation, which runs the State Parks Department, and the Natural Heritage Program that protects ecologically valuable property. The Nature Conservancy, as a private nonprofit, is a big landholder and a land conservation organization. The Piedmont Environmental Council has spearheaded the acquisition of all those easements, most of them in the Piedmont of Virginia. Um, there are various and sundry land trusts, smaller private groups around the state. Um, there's a new one in the Richmond area. There's some well-established ones in the Williamsburg area in Northern Virginia, out in Southwest. Um, I, I'm really pleased that the endowment made land conservation a priority in its grant making years and years ago. And in fact, we have helped the land trust movement really kind of get on its feet over the years and we've helped the Virginia Outdoors Foundation train new land trusts on how to be land trusts and be more effective. We've helped individual land trusts um, do their work. And um, it's, you know, some very highly leveraged grant making because we give a small grant to these volunteer organizations and they wind up learning how to talk people into donating easements on their property. That's a real win-win because the owners get the tax benefit and the public gets the overall benefit of having this land preserved in perpetuity, or at least we hope in perpetuity. That's the idea. Every so often someone in the legislature comes along and says, that ought not to be in perpetuity. Uh, but if it isn't in perpetuity, it's tough sell to people. So, uh, so far it's in perpetuity. I think uh, as people read your transcript or listen to this interview, um, the answer to this may be obvious, but I just thought I'd address it directly. Um, in which of those three areas have you seen the most success? Uh, is that air pollution, water pollution, and land resource conservation? Well, how do you define success, I guess? Um, it's a moving target to some degree because every success you have inspires you to go on and go further. So. I would say we have moved way beyond um, pollution at will in the air and water fields to permission to pollute and as a result have restricted the amount of pollutants going into the air and water. Uh, so we've made great progress there, but we still have, for example, a new phenomenon, which maybe it's not so new, but it's newly focused, is that all those pills and, and, and prescription drugs and whatnot that people take. Well, 
sometimes people throw the extra pills away when they're done with them. Sometimes, you know, they excrete them through eventually the sewage system. Well, all that stuff going into the environment, water in particular, you know, are you going to get high by drinking a glass of water? <laughs> you know, I hope not. Um, but there's a growing field of water pollution research that is looking at the effects of all of these complex pharmaceutical um, drugs going into the water supply of the Commonwealth. It's not a crisis by any means, but it's been building and building and building for years. And so there's a real question about um, is it dangerous? What can be done about it? And how do we do something about it? And we're looking at whether we can help some researchers do something about that right now. I don't know whether we'll be able to right yet. I think sooner or later we may have to uh, because I think it's a really good series of questions that demands an answer. And that's not the sort of thing we thought about 30 years ago, nor did we think about climate change 30 years ago. So like I always say, we have stuck to our mission of improving the environment by preventing pollution, conserving natural resources, and promoting environmental literacy. But the priorities we've chosen over the years to fulfill that mission are evolving all the time. Um, the emphasis on toxic substances in the water was the first major priority that the endowment settled on. We have done less with that in recent years, but now when you look at all these pharmaceuticals going into the water, you say, you know, maybe it's time we took another look at toxics in the water quality and see or toxics in the water and see how that may be affecting the quality of water in Virginia. And climate change 30 years ago, not on anybody's radar that I was aware of. And you know, we've always tried to stay a few years ahead of the pack and trying to figure out what's going on now that might have effects in the future, or what do we see coming down the road that we ought to start doing something about now. That's always been the way we've approached our work at the endowment. And uh, even though there's been progress, you have to say uh, there's always new issues somehow coming up. And in the air pollution area, it's mainly climate change, greenhouse gas emissions that we have to be concerned about. In water, it could be these pharmaceuticals may be new frontier. That, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about that stuff? And in land conservation, the one thing that's really nice about land conservation is that it's eminently measurable. You know whether you have conserved an acre of land or not. So when the governor, Governor Kane, said three and a half years ago that he was going to adopt as an objective 400,000 acres of land conserved by the end of his term, you could actually count that. And last I heard, he was at the 340,000 acre level or something like that that he can claim credit for in some form or another, uh, whether through private or public activity. And there's a very good chance he'll make that $400,000 $400, acre objective by the end of his term later this year or early next year. The question for me, though, as someone in the philanthropic business of land conservation, who's in it for the long run, you know, and who looks ahead, is what happens with the next governor and the one after that, and the one after that? A 100,000 acre a year objective is a terrific accomplishment. 
But as soon as Governor Kane walks out the door, it's over with. Now, will the next governor, whoever he turns out to be, want to continue that? Who knows? He'd probably have other priorities. And so one of the things we try to do at the endowment is figure out how can we encourage the state and governors and legislators to institutionalize that kind of pro progress. There is no plan for an ongoing land conservation 100,000 acre a year objective. And I think it's a great objective. I wish it would be sustained. And I heard the governor say 15 months ago that he said, I wish it would be sustained. And so how do you sustain things like that? That, for me, is a very interesting question. And one of the ways you sustain it is by providing money to do that. And so we've focused a lot in the last seven years on holding the state's feet to the fire to put up the money to carry out Article 11. By the way, in the state constitution, as you know, the rights of the citizens are defined, the organization of the government is defined, the tax, the financing of government, all that stuff is defined. When it comes to what the government actually does, you know, what's, what's it there for? There's only two subjects in the constitution, public education and conservation of the environment. Public education has funds dedicated to it constitutionally. It's in the state constitution. Money will be spent on public education. Conservation of the environment has zero dollars dedicated to it in the state constitution. Does that mean we ought to have a constitutional amendment to provide an ongoing fund for conservation of the environment? Well, not a bad idea. But maybe short of that, we ought to at least get the legislature and governors to put up money for it on a regular basis to continue water quality improvements, such as sewage treatment plant upgrades, um, and land conservation, acquisition of property, paying for easements, state parks, wildlife management areas, uh, new recreational areas, so on and so forth, all that. Those capital-type projects, I don't mean for the ongoing operation of the State Water Control Board or the DEQ or something like that. I'm talking about capital projects in a similar way to how transportation has a six-year plan for constructing roads, bridges, transit, rail. Um, they may not always get all the money that they need to do that, but at least they have a plan, and they update it annually. And it spells out exactly what projects will go forward in what year for how much money. There is nothing like that in conservation, and there needs to be. And so one of the things we have promoted in recent years is try to encourage the state to develop such a plan, but even more importantly in a way, and, and although I think the plan comes first, find a way once you have the plan, if you develop a plan that says this is what we're going to do, these are, the, these are the land conservation targets for next year, 100,000 acres one way or another, blah, 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 upgrade these. The, the DEQ has a long list of sewage treatment plant upgrades that it would like to fund that it doesn't have the money for. Assign the money in particular years and then go to the legislature and say, if you give us this money, this is what we're going to do with it. And then the odds improve dramatically of you actually getting the money as opposed to do it because it's the right thing to do, which has pretty much been the strategy until fairly recently. Um, because it is a public good, you ought to do it. Well, budget is the real policy document of any government operation. And 
it is a hard-fought matter. You don't just go in and say it's a good thing you need to spend money on it. That doesn't carry the day. You come in with specific projects with dollars allocated to them and you say this is what we'll spend the money on if you give it to us. Then your chances improve significantly of actually getting the money to do that. That's the kind of thing for these capital type projects that doesn't exist today and which we're working on trying to make happen. Have certain regions of Virginia had more severe environmental dilemmas than other regions? More severe what? Um, dilemmas, any type of environmental accidents or Well, certainly the, the Keepone mess in the James River in, in Hopewell, certainly um, the one good thing that came about as a result of that is the Virginia Environmental Endowment. Um, but, you know, up in Front Royal, they had a Avtex plant that discharged, you know, a horrible amount of stuff. That was a real disaster. Um, I'm sure I'm overlooking something, but um, strip coal mining is a very dirty business. Um, and it's hard to imagine just ripping off the top of a mountain to get at the coal seam. And then you just dump that mountaintop, you know, down the hill and into the stream and whatever is in its way. And that's perfectly legal, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. I mean, I think getting the coal is important, but and, and you don't want to lose any more lives the way underground coal mining has a tendency to do, but you're wrecking the environment too. Now, when they did old-fashioned strip mining the way they used to do it in the 70s and 80s, they learned how to reclaim those projects very nicely. You could fly over southwest Virginia, as I have, and you can look at reclamation projects that after 10, 15, 20 years, you're hard-pressed to know whether they'd ever mined anything there. They've really done a good job with reclaiming those things. But these latest operations, I don't know how that's going to play out. That's, that's, really, that's really tricky business. So they've had their issues. Shenandoah River has had mercury issues. It's had fish kills of uncertain origin. The Elizabeth River down on the south side of Hampton Roads was once considered the most polluted river on the east coast, thanks to a grant from the Virginia Environmental Endowment that started with a little group called the Elizabeth River Project. Uh, it is now on the way to recovery. It's a multi-million dollar state, federal, local, private volunteer operation that's doing wonderful things. We started it all with a $1,375 grant. And we've given it many more dollars over the years, but it's a real success story. So we don't, we've been very lucky in finding people who are really good at addressing these issues. And that's, you know, another part of what we need to talk about at some point because it's not all about the endowment. It's what the endowment has enabled other people to do. It's sort of like if, if we had a tagline, you might say, by their grants, you shall know them. And because that's how you prove whether you're really doing anything worthwhile or not and what the effects those grants have had on Virginia and its people. So it's a two-step process. Yes, we have to decide um, what to give money to and how do we do that and so on and so forth. Well, I'll just say at this point that one of the ways we do that is by defining clearly what we're trying to do, what, what is our priority agenda, whether it's water quality or land conservation or fisheries management in the Chesapeake Bay, people know what we're trying to find good ideas for. We don't just say, y'all come and tell us what you think's worth doing today. 
I mean, we certainly welcome any of that, but we also think through strategically where we're going as a philanthropy to try to improve the quality of Virginia's environment. And by setting those priorities and publicizing them, then we wind up inviting proposals to do something about those. And as a consequence, we give people money to do something. And as a further consequence, if they do it well and effectively, then something good happens. It's very much like a little trim tab on the tail end of a rudder of a boat or a ship. We're the trim tab. And we have enormous leverage because we're small, but we're highly focused. And what we do affects the rudder, and what the rudder does affects the direction of the boat. And we make trim tab grants. One other question, and then maybe we'll think about a break on yeah. today. I wanted to know, um, over the last several decades, your thoughts about the Environmental Protection Agency. Of course, it was created in 1970. What did you think at first? Well, I thought it was a great idea to pull all the different pieces of the government that they pulled, not all of them, uh, but the parts that they did, air and water and probably waste and radiation and I forget what else they may have had. Uh, yeah, it was a commitment on the part of the federal government to say, we're going to protect the environment. We're setting up an environmental protection agency, and it has cabinet status. So it's a significant you know, part of the government. And at least in those early days in the Nixon administration and the Ford administration, it had really good leadership. It had terrific people. Um, people who think the Republicans don't do the environment don't know their history. They may not do it very well or very often now, but they kind of invented the whole idea of conservation of the environment. Teddy Roosevelt um, got a group of his friends together in 1887 in his Manhattan townhouse and formed the Boone and Crockett Club. And the Boone and Crockett Club, of which I am a proud member and have been since 1981, and now officially an emeritus member, so all I have to do is contribute. I don't have to pay dues anymore. I just contribute to their good works. But the Boone and Crockett Club was founded by Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot and a couple of early leaders of what turned into the conservation movement uh, because they liked to hunt and fish. And when they went hunting and fishing out west, they saw a tremendous destruction of the environment going on by slob hunters who were wiping out the buffalo, who were wiping out the elk, who were wiping out the Rocky Mountain uh, sheep. Uh, all the big game animals that were so sought after were being systematically decimated by slob hunters who could try to get as many as they could as fast as they could. And it was a terrible, terrible thing to be taking place, and Teddy and his friends said, this has got to stop. And so they formed this first conservation organization club, really, to do something about it. And they started to. And then, of course, he got elected president, and he appointed a lot of these guys to head up his newly created agencies, like the, the Forest Service and um, the Bureau of Outdoor Reclamation or whatever. I mean, he started a lot of the conservation work of the federal government did a heck of a good job with it. And that carried out through the first half of the 20th century. Conservation was the approach, and conservation and wise use of natural resources. It wasn't destruction, it was conservation. 
and, and, and it was a conservative approach, if you will, because you weren't wasting things, you were trying to conserve them for future generations. And that's what conservation is all about, is to use your resources, but not in such a way that you destroy their future capacity. And some people in the 70s came up with a new word for that called sustainability, which is nobody has ever been able to define to my satisfaction because I don't think it improved upon the original definition of conservation that Teddy Roosevelt pioneered and did for such a long time. And his successors in the Boone and Crockett Club were the leaders of the conservation movement well into the 20th century uh, and for a long time. And uh, there's another whole story about what happened to the club for a while there in the 90s or so, uh, the 1990s, but I think we've recovered now from that unfortunate episode. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's still lots of very good conservation leaders today active as members of the Boone and Crockett Club. But they are more into the conservation of natural resources side of things than the uh, pollution prevention or the uh, pollution permitting business air and water and waste, they're more concerned with land and parks and um, fishing and hunting and um, uh, wilderness areas and uh, forest service uh, work and that sort of thing. It's two different branches of the larger conservation movement. And then Richard Nixon, when he became president, was a champion of the environment. A lot of people forget that, but he is the one who created the, signed the National Environmental Protection Agency, created the Council on Environmental Quality, created the Environmental Protection Agency, and, you know, was all for that stuff. It, it wasn't his life's work, the way it is for me, let's say, but it was something that, at the worst, he did not object to, and at the best, he appointed some extraordinarily good people to lead it throughout his term and uh, President Ford's term, and then President Carter appointed some good people as well. It was only a little bit later, uh, one of my favorite presidents, President Reagan, you know, who was such a wonderful, genial, smart human being, but he, he didn't appoint good people to take care of the environment. Uh, his, some of his were some of the worst ever, I guess. I don't know if you want to say that. But th that was the, their pollution prevention, natural resource conservation, environmental literacy was not their mantra. And uh, in that sense, we suffered a while. And George H.W. Bush did better, and then in recent years we hadn't done well at all. And now with the Obama administration, I'm hoping that we'll see a return to the mission of the Environmental Protection Agency to protect air, land, and water of the United States and around the country. Thank you so much. A great start. This will be the first of several interviews. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just cracked the surface. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs>